This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're the film people for your life. Film for all. Uh, hey. Hey. What's happening? Oh, not much. Um, we got back a couple of weeks ago. We went to Maine. And ever mm-hmm. since, because you also visited my house before, and we drove there. Epic road trip. But ever since, I've been walking around my house, and you know how like you don't know how your own house smells? But when you came in, you said, oh my God, your house smells like a yoga studio, like in a good way. Oh, yeah. So I've been trying to like tap into like, what does my house smell like? <laughs> like, I can't smell it. <laughs> I know. You're probably nose blind to your own house. I am too. I asked my sister once what my smell was. Have you ever asked anybody that? No. Have you ever ever been close to somebody like that to ask? I I really haven't. She's the only person. Uh, and I was like, what do I smell like? And she was like, vintage. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> just vintage? She, yeah, she just went, you just smell like vintage. And I was like, is that nice and cozy? Or is that dead? Alarm? It's like alarming? What, what's happening? Like, what does oh, vintage no. smell like? That is a, a vicious and savage and really vague yeah. <laughs> answer. So what are you what are you thinking about your home? Do you think it's the wood? I think it's the wood. Having it might be the wood. Yeah, it might be the wood. I have a lot of the same candle out, which is the candle that I get from the local place that I've been getting for 30 years, where he grabs mm-hmm. your hand across the counter and says, enjoy the light. So it could be that. But I'm glad it smells good because I feel like it doesn't. Like, I feel like, oh, God, there's always like, yeah, there's a lot of wood. It's a lot of cedar in this house, like a lot of cedars. So maybe that's the smell. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. It smells like, you know, because the thing about a yoga studio is that they usually have hardwood floors. It's a mixture between like hardwood floor and like, yeah, that kind of uh, Palo Santo meets, you know, some kind of uh, herb, like a a healing herb smell. It's it's lovely, actually. Aw, thank yeah. you. I love. I know that this was like last month when when I went up there. Um, so, but I still have a, a now a core scent memory of your home. So, aw, that's a, it. Was so nice to have you here. I'm so glad you were able to that we were able to do that. Like you drive, you come up here, fly in, and then we drive to Maine. That was yeah. great. Well, and let me just tell you something. Actually, I'll tell you two things. And actually, I don't even have to tell you at all because you were there. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, I got more comments and likes on that fucking post that I made where I took pictures of some 
safe public areas of your house than I have like at all. Like, I think I had more comments and likes on that post than the one that I posted five years ago of getting out of a surgery and being like, guess what? My life has been saved, everybody. I'm in the hospital, but everything is fine. I'm still on earth. (laughs) People cared more about your fucking library than they did about the fact that I was living after (laughs) surgeries. That is a sad state of the internet, I think, (laughs) because we're so overwhelmed with bad information all day. (laughs) <laughs> but I think anything good that pops up in people's eyeballs, they're like, oh, my God, thank God. Thank you for posting this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and but that's to be wild. honest, that was that whole hospital stay thing was before we started the podcast, before yes. anybody knew you and I at all, essentially. So, you know, to be yeah. fair, people do maybe would have cared that I lived uh, and, and survived uh, septic shock. However, people went fucking nutty for <laughs> your house. And I think that they were just excited that we were together. Because the other thing, too, is that we pretty much, like, decided to start leaving some Instagram stories about us driving up to Maine. And people were heavily invested in our journey. <laughs> that was so much fun. It was super fun. And I love I loved that. I love being able to to share that with, with our listeners um, and our friends because it was really fun to do. Like, that trip was great. I love that. And you you were so nice. Like, you, you asked me if you could post pictures in my house. And I'm like, yeah, of course. It's not like, you know, I've got like a den of iniquity in here or something. But Oh, I knew better. Trust me. I loved it. And you had your own room and your own bathroom? I did, actually. And I slept. The other thing, too, and maybe this is Part of it was the yoga smell, but I slept very well at your house, which I'm one of those people now, I think, as I've gotten older, where getting a good night's sleep outside of my own house is like such a roll of the dice. Right. Especially in hotels, like the hotel pillow scenario that's happening currently is so bad for me. And and it's hard. I've never traveled with a pillow. Like, I can't be that person. I don't know how to do it effectively because I'm carry-on only. Um, Yeah. So you can't really travel with a pillow. You do have to roll the dice and kind of say, hey, this is what I got. Listen, I'm, like, real close to doing a thing where I'm, like, because I have, well, I have many pillows, as everybody figured out. I I have at least four on my bed. (laughs) But, um... They're pretty much memory foam. Like, the ones that I actually lay my head on are memory foam. And there's a part of me that's like, guess what? I need a firm pillow to the point where I might put a memory foam pillow in a one of those compression bags. Yeah. Suck all the fucking air out of it with my vacuum and then put it in my my luggage. Because I I was just going to ask if you could do that. Yeah, I could I could potentially do that. The the problem with hotel pillows really is that they're too fucking soft. Ooh, I love a soft pillow. See, I, I can't. Like, I like to scrunch them up and like put them under my neck and like. Yeah. See, I'm a side sleeper. I'm a side to stomach sleeper. So I start on my side and then I end up on my face slash stomach. So I have to have something that like helps the neck and these soft luxurious. Down feather pillowy things are fucking me up. Like, <laughs> fucking me straight up. Can't take it. Like, get out of here with that soft shit. I'm a hard life living motherfucker. I'll tell you right now, 
I've done this is this happened to me after we parted ways in Maine. So we'll talk about the event in just a second because it was really lovely and we met some amazing people up there. But so we after our University of Maine thing, you went back to New York and then I stayed on a couple days and went to Acadia and, you know, went hiking and stuff, did all this like fucking hippie bullshit that I love. So I stayed at a cottage like right outside of the National Park in Bar Harbor that the pillows were so bad that I actually took a blanket that was meant for the common area, like maybe a fucking throw blanket for, you know, I don't know, like sitting on the couch, rolled it up like a yoga mat, took a took the pillowcase off of an existing pillow and then used it as a fucking pillow. Oh my God. And I was stuffing all kinds of linens in there. I was like, yo, let's put some fucking towels in there. Like, I need I need a, a firm pillow. This ain't working for me. So. so what I'm hearing is you got to Maine, and within three days, you were making your own pillows yeah. out of foraged goods, <laughs> like a wilderness woman. <laughs> After I had, three days. I adapted to the environment. But what I was saying is <laughs> the... That... Those moments in that thing made me miss your house. Like, I was like, Aww. oh, I wish I was still Danielle's house where I was slipping real good. I so. do have, I have four pillows on the bed, on the guest, in the guest room. Mm-hmm. I also have a bolster. Mm. Some people have a bad back. Some people need a knee thing. I got a bolster for you. But I have two pillows of one density and two pillows that are of another density. So that might be why it was okay. Yeah. Not memory oh. foam, but like thicker pillows. It was fantastic. It was it was such good, good sleeping. I needed it for the rest Aww. of that trip because that trip was there was a lot going on on our trip. I have to say we <laughs> we were doing the most. We did a lot. We did yeah. a lot, including but not limited to visiting two LL Bean stores. Yeah, we went to two. Although I have to say, I don't know if you knew this or not. I don't know if I told you this, but I actually went to a third. Why? After we left, after I we parted it. ways, I actually went to the outlet, the L.L. Bean outlet. I knew it. You know how I knew it? Because you posted pictures from Acadia and you were wearing that jacket that you were <laughs> thinking about getting when we were in the mothership. And I was like, she went back and got that jacket. <laughs> no, I actually, I got that jacket when you and I were together. But I oh, did. Okay. I went to the third L.L. Bean store, which was the um, the outlet. And here's the thing about the outlet the thing that I hate about outlets now is that the, back in the 80s, outlet stores were great. They were literally just like discounted products from the actual store. Now outlets have their own brand of bullshit. Like it's like worse clothing than the ones <laughs> that they have in the actual store. And then they just put like new tags on them. And I'm like, oh, God. Why do I want worse quality things from a, you know, like I don't want shitty versions of things like i just right. I, I know that they're supposed to be cheaper but a lot of times they're not even that much cheaper so i was happy to report though that an L.O.B. outlet was truly the old style of an outlet where it was like we had this nice. in the store it didn't sell and now we're putting it in an outlet i like it yeah but yeah the fact that you took me to a couple L.O.B. stores i think was devotion friendship like it meant we're forever bonded. A lot of people were pointing that out to us on our Instagram when we broke oh the internet, being in front of each other. 
It was a delight. Uh, the first L.L. Bean store was so funny. <laughs> so funny. I just piled on stuff and made you guess how much it cost. That's right. Had you been to an L.L. Bean? Because we don't have yeah. them here. So. Oh, yeah. I've been to the L.L. Bean store, and I did a podcast, a travel podcast a couple years ago uh, called Not Lost. And we actually went not only to the L.L. Bean mothership in Freeport, Maine. Um, they let us go in the lab. What? So I got to see them testing out the boots and they will genuinely put their winter boots in a block of solid ice and like see how the weather affects it and how long does it take to melt? Does it crack anything? Like they really put it through its paces before they release a product. So I got to go to the product lab. Look at my face. I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I'm pissed for me. How come I didn't get to go to the lab? <laughs> you got to see the big boot. Okay, fine. The I didn't big have the boot. big boot last time. But I want to go and see fucking shoes in ice. They that have this is... machine where they have like something inside the shoe and the shoe just walks like up, like it's just walking for like a thousand steps or 10,000 steps or whatever. We'll go next time. We'll set it up. Somebody hook us up with the LLB lab. So Millie will come back and we'll go to the lab. That's because you were doing that fancy podcast with your friend who was getting all this exclusive access to shit. <laughs> I know he set it up, so I can't even, I don't even have the contacts. I'm just saying they should have just looked at us when we walked in and, and been like, those ladies deserve to be in the fucking lab. Instead, they looked at us and they're like, maybe we should reconsider being a 24-hour store. <laughs> it should be like, watch those ladies in case they try to put some socks in their pants. It's it's 9 p.m. No one deserves this. We went in there like hooligans. I know. I did at one point when I was in the outlet, I I found this that there there was this older gentleman who was kind of following me around the store a little bit. He looked like the stepfather, Terry <gasps> O'Quinn and the stepfather. He had kind of that vibe. And I was like, what does he think is happening right now? Like, is he following me because he thinks I'm an itinerant woman that just walked into the store? Or does he have a little crush on me? Like, what? How? Do, what do I? What do I think about this? And it could have been my there? imagination as well. I mean, there's was, always was that. He an, was he an employee? Was he just another shopper? Oh, he was an employee girl. Ooh, see, I would have mm. wheeled around real fast and been like, "Bubba, what's up?" I know. What's up, I was Bubba? Like, I don't need any help. About to big mistake his ass from fucking pretty woman. I was you like, "Yo, up. I'll spend a grip in here. You watch me buy <laughs> these nine hundred dollar fucking." skis on the wall bitch what the fuck <laughs> anyway i will spend a grip in here should be on your goddamn tombstone <laughs> i was like i already just did that without <laughs> the added pressure of a dude thinking i'm shoplifting so oh no anyway. but it, it was, was uh it was so fun i you know we the thing that i think is probably the most heartwarming about this, at least for me, besides seeing you, is this notion that, like, the whole reason why we were there is because of this podcast. Like, we were there because, you know, somebody heard the clarion call that I had never been to fucking Maine. And, you know, we had an amazing time at the University of Maine with Jennifer and Steve and everybody that, you know, hosted us up there and brought us into their home and made us dinner and... You know, getting to meet everybody at the actual event, people who drove multiple hours to see us. I mean, I just, yeah. 
I don't know. I just was really touched by that. And just this kind of reminder of uh, just how much I love this podcast. And I love doing this podcast with you because it was just this thing where I was like, I literally just said words on a microphone and people connect to us and they, you know, brought us here, brought us to fucking turkey brains up there to talk about Stephen King. And we, and we had such a great time. You know? It was an absolute blast. And the person who heard our clarion call was Professor Jennifer Moxley. And we just adore her and Steve so much. Yes. Um, just made it so easy for us to be there as well, which I really loved. Like, we just kind of had to show up. Yeah. It was very well organized and planned. And the facilities up there are so nice. And it, it, I think we both were like, I miss school. Yes. Yeah. I miss being on a campus so much. Yeah. We had multiple events where we basically talked to students and, you know, went into a a couple of classes and just kind of sat around and talked to talked to people. And just the environment of higher ed is was like something that I missed and have missed. And, you know, now that I'm teaching, you know, I'm kind of getting it. But it's also just the vibe, like the vibe of school in the fall People run around campus and they're, you know, LLB and fleece and, you know, the feeling of like just being in these like older hallways with the books everywhere. It was so great. I know. And we and we were at the University of Maine in Orono and um, it was close to Banger. So we actually got to go to Stephen King's house, which was also my favorite part. His house is now part it's the i think the main building for the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation so they don't live there anymore but it had the coolest gate and it was just nice it's so nice to be to see where he lived cuz it was so normal like that was a normal neighborhood yeah the houses were big but it was a normal neighborhood <laughs> and i'm like oh Stephen King just lived like in the middle of normalcy in yeah. this t- incredibly cool small city small town yeah we didn't get to go inside. We didn't get to go into the lab where they were testing Stephen King books. But it was fun to be around in that in in sort of the region even where a lot of his inspiration came from, you know. Completely. And I was I did the whole nerdy thing after you left too, like the day when you when you drove back to New York, I was like telling my friend Emily who met me there to just drive me around to see all the Stephen King stuff. Like Aww. we went to the, you know, the the sewer where Pennywise pops out, you know, and like uh we ran around the there's a um famous cemetery there in Bangor that I guess they did shoot a scene from Pet Cemetery in. And uh I ran around that place and it was so beautiful and you know like i said it was fall and the leaves were beautiful and it was just like such a great part of the world that i had like again i would have never gone if it hadn't been for this podcast i know thank you thank you thank you professor moxley no the one thing i will say though and i think you'll totally (laughs) you'll totally see eye to eye on this with me so you told me pretty early on that there might be a moose sighting, <laughs> perhaps. And I was like, that blew my mind. That was like you <laughs> saying, you're going to see a saber-toothed tiger or something. And I was just like, what? Like, a moose. <laughs> and 
so be, so then I became kind of obsessed with the idea that I might see a moose. And I remember when we were pulling into uh, Banger, we were there at night because this road trip was like literally all day at night. Uh, yeah, we went like to that second LLB at night. <laughs> we added a couple hours by going to two LLBs, but that's we right. pulled in around 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, we also went to a McDonald's in a house. So it was... <laughs> We were we were stopping for every fucking side of the road thing ever. It was the fanciest McDonald's I've ever seen. Oh, it truly was. When I walked up, I'm like, did Gwyneth Paltrow like design this place? Is this a goop McDonald's? Like, what is going on? <laughs> and not for nothing, th- it was actually good for McDonald's. <laughs> like, I was like, this is good. I don't know if it's the house will, or, you know, what. I will never forget that man, though, who ordered after us. This man comes in and he goes... <laughs> I want French fries and I want a filet of fish. I want the French fries hot and fresh and I want my filet of fish hot and fresh. Can you do that for me? Like he was just so specific about having a hot, fresh filet of fish sandwich. Yeah. I was like, like, don't nuke that fish that you made six hours ago. I want it hot was and like fresh. Halfway over the counter, like, can you do my hot and fresh? And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. But yeah, we stopped a lot. We stopped a lot. We stopped a lot. So we were driving, you know, on the road, it, you know, in rural Maine. At night. Pitch black. And then, <laughs> p- yeah, pitch black, no fucking lights on. And then every so often you'd see this like road sign that has a giant moose on it. And it's like, <laughs> moose warning for the next 17 miles. And I just, <laughs> I just got immediately tense. Like I was you like, you got quiet. Oh my God. Yeah, I think we were both kind of like white knuckling it for the rest <laughs> of the trip. We went from like, I've never seen someone so excited to hear Dizzy Rascal <laughs> to dead silence. Listen, I, I've i seen the beginning of Get Out. I know what happens <laughs> when the deer jumps out in the fucking car. Like, I was like, that ain't us. We're not doing that. I don't want a moose jumping out. That'd be crazy. We would oh, probably God. have died if a moose, if we hit a moose at like 90 miles an hour, forget it. R.I.P. <laughs> Queens. Like, come on. My favorite part, though, was that your friend, Emily, was send, sent you a text message <laughs> while we're in the middle of white-knuckling it and looking at these signs in the middle of nowhere, the pitch dark, we're tired, it's 11 o'clock at night. And your friend, Emily, sends you a message that's like, beware of the moose, it's mating season, or something like that. Oh, yeah. I was like, don't send me this fucking text right now. <laughs> I'm already <laughs> nervous as it is. I think she was like a bunch of people died or I don't know. There was something, some tinge of horror to it that made you go real quiet. <laughs> oh, yeah. It wasn't until we got to the hotel that I like hugged the carpeted bathroom floor. Like, I love you. I am so glad we're not out in the middle of nowhere where a moose could just show up and jump in front oh, of our God. car. So. Oh, what a fantastic trip. How did you feel, though? Like, you went to Maine and did an event. You went to Maine and stayed and went to a national park. Like, was it everything you thought it would be? Oh, of course. I mean, it's like, I mean, between where you live in upstate New York, the drive to Maine, the actual city of Bangor and Orno and then Bar Harbor, all that national park stuff, I was, like, plotting, thinking, how do I live around here? Like, I was like, how, what How do, What changes can I make to, like, live around here? But then I remembered it snows so much up there. It can. It can. If you were to move directly to Maine, yes, it would be a, a shitload of snow for you. It snows here, like, a regular amount. Okay. For the most part. 
I'm just angling to get you to move here. I think you would like upstate New York. No, I know. I definitely wouldn't. Like, you're not my only friend that has lived there or lives there. I mean, my, a couple of friends of mine from Atlanta, like, just came from there, and they were like, we miss it so much. It's so lovely. So I have nothing but positive memories and core set memories of your house. I did hear deer. I heard. I actually heard the wild animals that you talked about so much. Yep. They, they stomp around at night, probably right outside your bedroom. Yeah. So it was everything that I ever imagined it would be. You know, it was basically like getting to like connect the dots with like everything that you've talked about on this podcast was so nice. That was also my favorite part of you visiting is every bathroom I showed you. You're like, is this the Diva Cup bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the room? Is this? And the Diva Cup bathroom was the last of four that I showed you. I really can't believe how many fucking bathrooms you have in the house. <laughs> Bitch, neither can I. <laughs> oh, my God. But you got to see it all. You got to see it. That was nice, too, that you got to connect the dots to, like, how insane it is that I live here. Yeah. Well, it was such a wonderful trip. Thanks to everyone who made it memorable for us and for anybody who was riding along with us on the Internet while we were being goofballs. Uh in the uh, in the Northeast, it was awesome. So and we'll, and people are asking like, oh, you should come to this school. You should come to that school. Invite us. We'll probably oh come my to your God, school. Please. You look how quickly we booked this trip. Like we will come <laughs> to your school if you will have us. And also, like not for nothing. And maybe this is a future plan, but I would totally get in an RV with you and go across America. For oh, that would be a blast. I know for some podcast stuff. So. If you own an RV company and you want to let us borrow an RV for a while, please email us at us out. You did pot at gmail.com. Colleges, RVs, anywhere else you want to go? Cruises, Viking cruises specifically. <laughs> Viking cruises only. Don't put me on a fucking party bus cruise with some drunk folks. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's the 311 cruise, I would definitely go on that. They have a cruise? Girl, yes, they do. Come on! I'm on the mailing list for it, actually. <laughs> what does that cruise look like? One giant pot leaf that just <laughs> floats in the air and sparkles. <laughs> That's what Do it you looks have, like. You have to greet everyone every morning with like, come on, Reginald. You got to come on, Reginald. <laughs> <laughs> and then you say goodnight and you're like, I don't know the lyrics, but something, 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 down, down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sleep on my down, down pillow. Okay. Let's get to these fucking movies. <laughs> I swear, we have to. Okay, so this theme that we got this week is so fun for me <laughs> and for you. You named it perfectly. Do you want to tell them what it is? I would love to, because our theme this week is this motherfucker right here, and it's about guys who got away with it. That's right. Guys who got away with it. Uh, This motherfucker right here. This motherfucker right here. But also, I'll say this. The reason why it's fun for me is because I figured out that it's also about something else. (gasps) And I don't think we've discussed it. Okay. So this theme... Also happens to be about, at least from from my, you know, analysis of it after watching both these movies again. These are movies about men who are being confronted 
by a new culture of violence that they cannot understand. Oh, And they are partnered with younger men who lack patience for any kind of real detective work that they're used to, and they make a lot of assumptions about things. Ooh, that is for sure true, and it's great connection between both films. Thank you so much. I mean, that is like the joy of this podcast for us, is that we figure out that not only were the two movies that we decided to put together about this thing we thought was really amusing or interesting, but they also just happen to be about this other thing that maybe we didn't get. It's so true, because in both instances, it's like, I think, and I actually wrote this down in my notes, that in both instances, it's like pairing the the law enforcement pairings. It's like pairing a puppy with a grizzly bear. Totally. Totally. Which I think is an interesting concept, especially as I've gotten older, is that when you age, you start contemplating a lot of shit about the way things are and who's who's coming down the stairs behind you in that very showgirls kind of way. And I'm I'm super intrigued, though. I love this connection about how it's about people facing a new type of violence. Yeah. That Absolutely. is so true. Like the heightened violence, because, you know, No Country for Old Men was set in the 70s? 80s, right? I think. 80s? Maybe early 80s. And then, you know, 7 was set in, set in a more modern day, closer to when it was released, but it was still this ultra-violence that I don't think we had seen culturally. Like, that wasn't really a time of, you know, mass shootings and, you know, family slayers, or what do they call those guys that kill their whole families? Patricidal? No. Is that when you kill the dad? That's when you kill the dad. Oh. Annihilators, sorry. Annihilators. Is that what annihilators mean? I think so. They, they, I think they call them family annihilators. Wow, that's intense. So we hadn't, like, reached that cultural moment yet. So even in film, yes, they're being confronted in this film by a new level of violence. Um, but I think that level of violence was kind of heightened culturally as well. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, is that, like, yeah, in both these movies, you've got these, like, older characters who are in law enforcement, and they're basically, like, you know, kind of in their, like, waning days. They're about to retire, or this is, like, their last gig before they retire. And they're like, this is the worst crime. Like, what am, what am I doing? What is, like, how have things changed since I started? And, you know, what is this kind of, like, new era of, you know, chaos and, you know, uncertainty? Uh, and what does it mean for everybody? So it's just, it's just interesting on that point, too. But I will say, I have not seen your movie since 1995. As you famously know by this point, I was a huge fan of your movie when I was in high school. I had a a club alongside a bunch of dudes that was inspired in part by your film Seven Deadly Monkeys. The Seven Deadly Monkeys. <laughs> I'm not letting you get away with not saying the name. Oh, no. The Seven Deadly Monkeys, which, by the way, were it was a, a mashup between Seven and Twelve Monkeys, <laughs> which so was the other the other film that everybody liked a lot. 
<laughs> you all really loved Brad Pitt from the beginning. And and as I talked about on this now free and open bonus episode that anybody could listen to if they wanted to, every member of the group had a different name, a code name, and they were the lust, <laughs> anger, you know, like the fucking... Seven Deadly Sins, much oh, like God. Seven, the movie. And it's so embarrassing oh, to think about now. But, <laughs> but all that stuff came rushing back. And I swear to God, I cannot think of, like, just the music, the vibe, the the style of the film is so 1995 goth industrial nerd shit. I just, I, I almost don't want to talk about my movie. I just want to talk about your movie. So I know. <laughs> feeling but we're we are going to talk about your movie for sure but i know you have a lot to say about my movie yes i do and i think you're going first so i'm going first so i'm gonna just walk us right into it uh my movie came out in 1995 it was written by andrew kevin walker it was directed by david fincher my movie is seven have you ever seen anything like this no also known as sesezen S-E with a number in the middle, E-N, Sesezen. Lucky number Slevin. <laughs> or whatever. Isn't that a movie, too? Ah, that's a movie, too. <laughs> Isn't Josh Hartnett in that one? Oh, God. I don't even know. I don't, I've never seen it, but it's like these like weird, stylized versions of these fucking movie names drive me crazy. And if you've ever worked at a record store or like, oh, a, uh, you know, anything that has a database and you have to come across one of these fucking movie titles, you're just like, no. <laughs> I tried to put, I put seven in my search engine bar to rent this. And it came up as Sesezen. <laughs> and I was like, how fucking dare you? It's seven. It doesn't even make sense. Seven does not resemble a V in any sense of the word. And if you're just going to put the number in, you don't need the letters. Like, come on. <laughs> but again, those gritty, stylized 90s ways. God, boy. That's how we that, did it. That is how we did it. And even from the credits. From the credits of this movie, I was like, ooh, I forgot about this, like, glitchy font, scratchy record look. That was yes. kind of prevalent at a point and, point in time. And also that weird, like, this, like, prologue to Closer, the Nine Inch Nails song Closer, where it's like, yes. not a, I don't know if it was like a remix or like an extended version. And I was like, holy fucking shit, this is so 90s, I can't take it. I also, what I love about the, the credits is that you can see the killer making his crazy journals. Mm. How do we feel about a killer's journals situation? We'll, we'll, we can get into it later, but I just wanted just an initial thought of like someone with the tiny handwriting and the black and white composition notebook and they're pasting things in it and they're like really putting a lot of work into it and it's unintelligible and makes everyone sigh with resignation that they even have to read them at one point. We'll put a pin in it because I'm definitely interested in what you feel about that as a writer. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm going to give you my one-sentence synopsis. A fucking lunatic is running around killing people based on the seven deadly sins, and it's up to an almost retired detective and his brand new partner to catch him. <laughs> Done. You did it. <laughs> so 
So this movie, as we have said, was directed by David Fincher, who did do another movie before this. I, for a long time, thought this was his first film, but he um, directed Alien 3, Mm, uh which I did not know. But prior to that, David Fincher came up through and really said that was this was his film school. He was a video director, music video director, like so uh-huh. many directors that we love nowadays. That's how he came up. But I was shocked to learn what some of the videos were that he directed, including, but not limited to, George Michael's Freedom 90. Yeah. Remember the dark, moody look of that video? That's David Fincher. Yeah. Um, Aerosmith's Janie Got a Gun. Ooh, I should have known. I should have clocked that one. <laughs> Billy Idol's Cradle of Love. Huge fan of that one. Huge. Big fan. And for Madonna, he directed several videos, but my two favorites would be Express Yourself and Vogue. Yeah. Vogue. Adventure. I know. Vogue is one of the most, the best videos of all time. Oh, yeah. He's got chops, I think. He's got chops. So he was brought in to direct Alien 3. There are interviews out there with him where he talks about how Seven kind of helped him recover from the experience of Alien 3. I don't think he really loved it. Uh, Probably wasn't really in his oeuvre. And, you know, first time directing is hard if you're not doing something that's your work that you're passionate about. Mm. But he went on to just absolutely demolish it like he i feel like he's one of those directors who came out of the gate with his own sense of style and um really cemented himself as a a specific voice very early on Mm -hmm. um but i've also liked watching how that voice has developed so through zodiac and gone girl and like yes it's still moody it's still gritty but it's a little more stylized a little more finessed um, but he hasn't lost anything. I think he's just kind of adding to his own identity, which feels kind of nice oh, to watch. Yeah. Zodiac is a fucking masterpiece in my mind. It's Absolutely. so good. And it's like a thing where I th- I don't know what, like the, I think the critical appraisal or at least the audience appraisal of that movie has totally come around. I remember when that first, that Zodiac first came out, everybody was like, this sucks. I think it's brilliant. Like Absolutely. One of my faves. Yeah, totally one of my faves, I think. I'm so glad that that movie got rediscovered and recontextualized because it rules. It rules. And I'm even going to say Gone Girl is great. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but I enjoyed it. Fucking killer job on Gone Girl. And I know it's more recent, but it's, it's, it's one of those movies that I can watch again and see something new in it. So... I know. I just, I love, I just, I really appreciate his style. And I can't say that about a lot of directors, um, but I really, I like that I can recognize a David Fincher movie. I like that he, again, kind of pushes his own boundaries in some ways um, while still remaining very true to himself. And at the time of this recording, he hasn't said anything wild Mm. or done anything crazy. He's not like a super chauvinistic or misogynistic or racist or anything like that. So, I guess. Also, the thing about him, too, that I think is so... He's like... uh, To me, he's one of these directors that made this huge cultural explosion type of film, you know, Fight Club, right? That is just this movie that's in the ether at this point, and everybody is like, love it or hate it, you gotta know something about Fight Club. And... I feel like in a way, 
he's so he's he was so known for that movie for so long that it might have eclipsed some of this other stuff that he was doing at a certain points of his career. And I'm like, yeah. oh no, like fuck Fight Club, like Zodiac's where it's at, or Gone Girl's where it's at, or even Seven, which. Yes. I begrudgingly say that considering how big of a nerd I was for this fucking movie. But I actually thought, you know, re rewatching seven, I was like, oh yeah, this is totally great. Like he's he's a great director. Absolutely. You know? Oh, I'm so glad you feel that way too, because I do as well. Yeah. And I'm definitely as we before we move into the movie itself, I'm gonna do something a little unorthodox. I, I don't think we've ever done this on the pod before. I'm not gonna talk about a certain actor who's very prominent in my film. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm only going to say his name this once. Uh, Kevin Spacey, who has been accused of some vile, heinous shit that, in my opinion, I fully believe he did. <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to say that. But I don't want to talk about him at all. Cool. And I'm thankful that he's, even though he has a big role in this film, he doesn't have a good, big presence in this film. Um, and I just don't think he deserves to have be part of the discussion. And maybe that's, again, completely unorthodox, but I personally don't want to shine a light on him at all. Oh, and not for nothing, he's the corniest part about the movie now. Like, to me. Like, ah, ah. sorry. But his whole bullshit in this movie is so annoying. <laughs> well, good that we don't have to talk about him. because That's I all we're going to say. <laughs> all we're going to say. Uh, so when we start on this film, again, we've got, uh, we start on a Monday, Right. And the movie is going to take us from Monday to Sunday. And we're going to start with these crimes that eventually are pieced together as being the same killer who's leaving little clues that all of these crimes are based on the seven deadly sins. So the seven deadly sins are, do you want to tell us, Millie, since you were in Seven Deadly Monkeys? Oh, God, I don't even rem- Can I see how many you remember. You could try, try. And If you don't remember, I'll, I'll, I'll back you up. Okay. Lust. Mm-hmm. Greed. Mm-hmm. Sloth. Yep. Gluttony. Mm-hmm. Anger. No. Mm-hmm. Wrath. Mm-hmm. Something. Something about angriness. No. So, no. Oh fuck! What? Something. Something about aggression. All I know is it's it's an aggressive. You got wrath. Okay, wrath. Okay. So that's yeah, five. Two more. That's five. Uh, vanity or something? No. <laughs> Envy and pride. I knew it was something like that. <laughs> I knew it was so like But you did good. You got five out of seven. Damn. Okay. I'm sorry, seven deadly monkeys. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, th- I'm thinking that you just forgot who those two people were, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I could. You forgot Envy and pride. Yeah, I'll have to look at our, um, our workbook that we had and I'll find out who was, who was who (laughs) pull out that same crate that had the VHS tapes you made with your God criminal high school teacher. (laughs) Just fucking torch (laughs) that entire thing. When I die, just torch it. (laughs) Like doesn't need to exist. Put it in your will. I'll do it. Okay. So we start and we're, we're with detective Somerset who is played by Morgan Freeman, who actually looks young in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> which is wild because I'm like, I don't think he looks old now, but yeah. then you see him from back in the day and you're like, oh yeah, he's definitely in his seventies or eighties. Like he definitely is. Yeah. But he felt older to me then. So it's weird to look at him now and be like, oh no, yeah. you were old then too. Yeah. 
So Morgan Freeman is Somerset, Detective Somerset, and he is coming up on this crime scene. And it's a larger man face down in a plate of spaghetti. And at first, they're not sure if it's a heart attack or not until they see that he's bound at the wrists and there's a bucket of puke under the table and realize that the man ate until he burst. So Somerset is like, uh, I fucking want out. This is going to be a long ass case and I'm a week away from retirement. It's also too soon for my partner who I just met, Detective Mills, who comes in with the energy of a puppy. And he's a nervous talker and he like... (laughs) It's like he's really nervous and excitable and Somerset is super bitchy and tired. And he's just like, I don't want to do this case. This is going to be a long road that will take more than a week. I want to, I, I want to get, I want to get your uh, read on something I'm about to, t- to say. I'm, gonna, I'm yes. about to propose something, right? By all here's, means. Here's the thing about my rewatch. I think in 95, if I re- remember accurately, I thought Brad Pitt in this role was kind of cool. He was like, you know, like a kind of, uh, you know, off the cuff fucking renegade kind of young cop guy wearing his goddamn long sleeve shirts with the sleeves going over his hands. And he just had that bleach blonde hair bullshit going. I was just like, oh, he's cool. He's like emblematic of the era of the mid 90s. Yep. So when I watched this again, I was like, I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> yes! I hate his ass. He is so annoying. He also is, like, completely freaked out by any, you know, any kind of suggestion that he might be gay. Yep. And I'm like, here's the thing. To me, in this modern age, hadn't watched this movie, I'm like... Brad Pitt to me is like a homophobe bro, and Morgan Freeman kind of comes across as bisexual. Oh, say more about that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and this is like this is the the, the gut feeling that I had because it's like okay, th- there's lots of hints at, at at Morgan Freeman's character Somerset being this like you know single guy. He might have been married once. He almost was in a relationship with a woman, and they almost had a baby. But he doesn't read completely straight to me. Okay. I don't know why that is. I might need a uh, an essay on this, a, a narrative mm. essay. Right. And I'm not just saying it's because he loves books and classical music, which are <laughs> classic indicators of gay things in old movies, right? But I'm just saying that I feel he feels not completely straight, and then Brad Pitt feels too straight. Yes. You know what I mean? I, Brad Pitt definitely feels too straight to me in this film. Yeah. And I think that there's an aloofness to Somerset that I appreciate, but I think what you're reading is bisexual. I'm just reading as old age. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the two things could exist together. I sure. just think he has fucking had it. He's like, I've had it with, he's not upset with his life. This is the other thing that's very interesting to me about Somerset. He has interest, he has a routine. He's not upset with his life. He's not his character from Shawshank Redemption, let's say. Mm-hmm. He's not red. But he is over the bullshit of what everyone thinks he should be. Right. So he's like, you think I should not retire? Well, fuck you, I'm retiring. You think I should be married? Well, fuck you, I'm not going to get married. You think I should I should have kids? You think I should be working in the, co- the country instead of the city? I think he just is making up his own life as he goes along. 
And it's just better. I think he decided a long time ago that he's better off doing that by himself. Yeah. And especially when he's put up against this new partner, because this kind of goes back to this like secondary theme of the episode, which is this like, he's seen some shit. He, he has a method. He, he has a way of doing the casework. That's not like immediately draw your gun and start firing. It's like, it takes patience and absolutely hard unsexy research sometimes to figure out how to solve crimes. And Brad Pitt's the absolute opposite. He's just like, I'm ready to fucking go, that puppy energy. And he's like, I don't want to deal with this shit. Like, And and the Brad Pitt character Mills, he kept coming in and being like, like, I've done this before. Like, I don't need you to tell me. Like, I've done this before. And I'm like, "Mm, but you haven't done, and yeah, even Somerset says like, you haven't done it here. And you haven't done it frequently or you haven't done it for a long time. So Just that energy of like, hang on, Carrot is attacking a Target bag right now. <laughs> like, what is this sound? It just has socks in it, buddy. So yeah, like Somerset comes in with this energy where he's like, you only have a week to learn from me at first. And then by the time he decides he wants off the case, he's like, well, you have a week to figure your own shit out. Because I think he sees this aggressiveness in Mills that he knows can't be like taught out of you. Yeah. And it's interesting as the movie progresses, especially as we get to the ending, where you see something does happen that finally breaks him. Yeah. And it is the most devastating thing of all time. Right. But Mil- but Somerset sees in Mills already, like he needs to be broken down and I'm not the one to do it. Right. And I kind of love that. Yeah, uh, totally. because I I could not agree with you more. That Brad the Brad Pitt character of Mills was so annoying to me this time around. <laughs> Thank God you think that. <laughs> I just kept saying like, "Shut up, dude! Shut up!" Like to my own TV, I'm like, "Dude, just shut up! Yeah, just shut up!" Oh my God. But that's a well written character that makes you feel like that. Like, ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they don't start putting the the puzzle together. That these crimes are, are are connected until Tuesday when a lawyer is killed and, you know, greed is written on the ground in blood. And the glutton was also fed plastic pellets uh, that kind of leads Somerset into researching the deadly, seven deadly sins. And he kind of can't help himself from researching this case that he said he doesn't want to be on. And then Mills's wife invites him to dinner. Uh, and Mills's wife... Tracy is played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and they were dating at this time. And she is also deeply annoying to me in this film. If that makes me a bad feminist, because I feel like she should have worn a bra that dinner, <laughs> then so be it. So fucking be it. You're like, put him away. Morgan Freeman is in the room. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> you just don't know what these other cops are going to be like. Okay? And there, But that, to me compounds what I think is this naivety, like the naivete that they kind of are infusing this character with. Because you learn at this dinner that that Tracy and Mills were high school sweethearts and, you know, they've kind of just always been together and she was a kindergarten teacher. And they have the worst apartment in the world, which is finally what gets Somerset to agree to work on the case. Weirdly, like he can't stop laughing about how this apartment shakes every time the subway rolls by. Um, Oh, and another thing about this apartment... I'm just gonna say it. They got three giant dogs in this in this small ass apartment. 
You know they're not walking those dogs all the time because it rains so much. I'm called. And plus, he's at work all the time. So what, she's walking those dogs all three at a time? Does she have one of those belt things? I don't see it. I don't see it. Those dogs would ruin her. Oh, yeah. She's not wearing a bra. She's not going to wear a belt, like a a, a leash belt. (laughs) 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 This is an accessory free motherfucker. Give me a break. Oh, God. I absolutely love it. And again, we're going to get to, in a moment, why I find her so deeply annoying in this film. But she's wait. a little annoying right now. Just the, 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 I cannot understand, like, inviting your your new partner, your, new, your husband's new partner over. Like, that seems totally normal to me. But he's already said, I don't want to work with you. And I think there's, like, kind of hubris to her. Mm. Where she's like, I can get you over here and, like, talking to us and blah. Anyway. <laughs> they start piecing this case together. <laughs> And they find these little clues like, oh, this painting was upside down or he left prints behind, but they're not his handprints or they're the handprints of some other dude. And from the fingerprints, they get this name, Victor, this guy who um, is a criminal pedophile. And they go to his house. And this to me, I don't know, this is one of the most memorable scenes of this movie to me. A hundred percent. They walk into this goddamn house and Victor is not... The killer, he is a victim, they soon discover, because he is laying in bed. There are air, pine air fresheners hanging all over the ceiling. And he's in bed as the example of sloth. And he's basically been starved to death and kept on the brink of death for a year. There are photos in his apartment dated a, a year ago when he was perfectly healthy and this first started to when he was where he is now, which is, you know, they walk up to him and they're like, this guy is a skeleton, he's dead. And then this motherfucker lets out a breath and sits up and I have never jumped so hard in my life as when I first saw this movie. <laughs> and it still got me this time. It still got me. Yeah, still got me this time too. The fucking Scrubs guy. What's the guy from Scrubs? John McGinley. <laughs> yeah, John McGinley that like plays that like aggro what is he, an ATF guy or something, you know, like a, a SWAT team guy gets down in his face and he's just like, fuck this motherfucker. <laughs> well, you know, like he'll, he says something really snarky. And then the dude's like, I'm alive, bitch. <laughs> that scared the shit out of me. And like, like I couldn't sleep. Like unbeknownst to the seven deadly monkeys, I could not fucking sleep. When I that saw that, freaked me. There's one other scene coming up that truly ruined my life, but this one freaked me out and scared me more than anything I'd seen up to that point. Yo, for at least a steady like 15, 20 years, if I saw more than one pine air freshener anywhere, like in someone's <laughs> car, I'm like, <laughs> get me the fuck out of there. Like, no way. Like, people who leave them and just keep adding to them instead of taking the old one off. Yes. I'm like, what are you, fucking psycho? You gotta buy Take in that the shit trunk? down. <laughs> Have you seen seven? Ah, ah. What I also love about this scene is they're looking at Victor and he's like, again, strapped to this bed. He's been completely hindered and and emaciated. And like they realize somebody's been kind of keeping him alive and like giving him antibiotics and all kinds of shit. But he also is missing his left hand. And they realize that that hand is what was used to leave the fingerprints. So this killer cut off this man's hand to leave the fingerprints. And this is what truly fucks me up about this movie. And most serial killers in real life. A serial killer who's methodical is a different kind of fucking beast. Someone who is planning shit a year out 
and is smart enough to leave clues and shit like that and put this puzzle together, that freaks me out. How many packs of the uh, air fresheners did he staple to the ceiling? He had to staple all these air fresheners to the ceiling. He was paying this man's rent. <laughs> he was paying, paying the this rent. man's rent every month. Leave like no stone maniac. unturned. That's maniacal shit. I, nobody would pay my rent for me. And I mean, even people who wouldn't kill me, like no one was ever paying my rent. Well, like even a roommate wouldn't drop off the rent at the fucking landlord's office. I always had to do it. <laughs> oh my God. Well, by the time we get to Friday, Tracy is on my last fucking nerve. Tracy and Mills are so well <laughs> paired for how annoying they are. Perfect. Because she is literally interrupting this investigation because she's lonely and sad. So she calls Somerset. She's like, I fucking hate this city. I used to have a life and be a kindergarten teacher. Now I'm living in this apartment where the subway comes through every five minutes. Oh, and also I'm pregnant. And Somerset is like, please leave me out of this. <laughs> He's like, don't you have three dogs you can pour this out onto? Why me? Do you have a college roommate? Do you have literally anyone else you can go to? Maybe talk to your actual husband. <laughs> He is so like, what have I gotten myself into? And the look on his face. His words are very kind, but the look on his face is, you got to be kidding me. Right. I mean, th that's, again, the, the part of the movie that is annoying, actually, is just like, oh, well, this like beautiful white woman has a problem and I have to stop my entire fucking life, my last days of my career thinking about her issues <laughs> exactly so the humor again the hubris the entitlement in the 90s i was like oh that's sweet that they have like a sweet little relationship yeah she feels like too. she can go to him but time has jaded me i hear you time has jaded me because i saw that scene and i'm like will you let this man try to find this fucking serial killer in the last three days he has to work i'm like this lady needs to put on a bra and go see a therapist <laughs> <laughs> That's age for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't, and they're still trying to... <laughs> she doesn't do any of that. And we're still trying to track down this killer, and there's three fucking deadly sins left, envy, pride, and wrath. And they're kind of running out of options. So they finally connect the dots when Somerset is like, all right, I've got this guy at the FBI... And he looks up information for me. And this is kind of a weird reveal, but he's like, oh, P.S., the FBI tracks um, everyone's library checkout lists. So if somebody checks out something that can be flagged, then we can, like, build a profile on them. Mm. And that was the first time, again, 1995, I'm 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. And I was like, wait, they're doing that? Are they doing that for real? Are they tracking my shit at the library? Do they know how many times I've checked out these V.C. Andrews books? <laughs> like, that was the first time I thought the government even knew who I was. <laughs> yeah, I can see me like, looks like Henderson, Danielle, wants to have sex with her brother. She's rented V.C. Andrews, <laughs> Flowers in the Attic, 12 times in the past year. Oh, no. <laughs> That freaked me out, too. I'm like, again, the scares in this movie just keep on coming. 
Oh, for sure. I also love that Mills can't pronounce anything. Like he's like, oh, this he rented he he checked out Marquis de Chardet. Like I yeah. just love that they made that character kind of unintelligent in that way. He's smart in other ways, but he's like not book smart. This motherfucker is so stupid <laughs> that he can't. <gasps> oh god. He calls Dante an F word. I'm just like <laughs> Why do I hate this character so much? Here's why. Oh, God. He's so threatened (laughs) at all times. Perpetually threatened by everyone. Oh, my God. Even Dante. Even Dante. Dante. Even the long dead Dante. (laughs) Lord. So we, they find out who they think is the killer. They go to his apartment. And then Somerset is like, wait a minute, we can't barge in because then I'll have to explain how I have this information. And Mills is like, or fuck you. And he kicks the fucking door down after an epic foot chase in the rain. And there's also a point where, you know, during, after this, before this epic foot chase, there's a guy in a stairwell who's like taking pictures of them and pretending to be part of the, like pretending to be a journalist and Mills is all aggro and like, take take my fucking picture. Um, But they get into this house and it is like stock serial killer territory. There's a, the thing that freaks me out the most about this apartment, many horrors within. The thing that freaks me out the most is the twin bed under the glowing red cross. (laughs) Twin bed. Oh yeah. A twin bed under a glowing red cross. And I'm like, that, that's a detail that's a little too close to home. If you know some weirdos, you know what I'm talking about. A twin bed. My dude, get a full. Bare minimum. Bare men's get a full. A full is a twin bed for adults. Just upgrade slightly. It's not even that much more ex- expensive than a twin. There's something about a twin in this film, especially. I'm not shaming oh. anyone who sleeps in a twin bed, trust. There's something about a twin bed in this film that tells me more about this dude Because I'm like, oh, you never even plan on getting laid. Like, you never even plan on having a friend or company. Like, it's just the narrowing of your own life down to that. Oh, He's so busy stapling damn air fresheners to the ceiling. He's like, I don't care about my own needs. I I would love to spread out in a full, but I have a twin. He's too busy slicing off his own fingerprints Mm. to actually pay attention to his living space. That's right. <laughs> but he does have over 200 goddamn journals filled with his fucking, oh no, I'm sorry, 2,000 notebooks. And Somerset takes a look at that and he's like, this is going to take us all fucking year to get through this shit. Shit, and like, you know how Mills feels about reading. <laughs> he's like, no way. <laughs> when I say us, I mean me. Because clearly, <laughs> Mills ain't going to read shit. But while they're in the apartment, there's a dark room and they, you know, they find this picture of a blonde and, and a receipt for a leather store. And that's what leads them to the lust murder. And this is the killing that ruined my fucking life when I was 17 and seeing this shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I cannot even describe. I mean, Leland Orser plays the character who was forced into doing this horrible deed by the serial killer. And his reaction is my reaction. Like, just trauma. (laughs) 
slash trauma response. And it hasn't changed. I hate that scene to this day. It's so graphic. I'm just going to say there's a knife dick involved. Yeah. The dick knife. The this dick. is, again, anno- uh, annoying. And the serial killer sucks so bad. He's so annoying. He, he, he's, he had to go to, like, sp- get a custom dick knife made to enact his stupid crimes. There is nothing funnier to me than you getting angry at a serial <laughs> killer for how dumb they are. We get it. You're smart and lonely. We get it. And you hate everybody so much. Join the goddamn club. <laughs> None of us are out here making knife dicks just because we're part of the human condition. <laughs> so by the time we get to fucking Sunday, we're like, wait a minute. What's going on here? We still got two fucking killings to go or two, you know, killings to go. And... Somerset's about to fucking retire. Well, don't worry, because the killer walks himself into the precinct and turns himself in. Yep. And this is why I chose this for this theme, okay? Even though I don't want to... I know it's some of you are probably like, it's so unfair that you don't want to talk about the the killer. I chose this because this is a killer who would have have gotten away with it fully if he hadn't walked himself into the police station, but who also still gets away with it after he's yep. caught. I will yes. explain. Because the last two murders still take place. Yeah. So he doesn't turn himself in until he knows he has completed his cycle. Yes. Brilliant. Fucking brilliant. And he's like, I can't wait for you to see it. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> In 95, this was all terror, terror filled <gasps> details. Like, I was like, I can't believe a man would do that. I can't believe that that would happen. This guy is so insane. He's done this. And now I'm like, God, because he has a lot of pomp and circumstance at the end. Like, this is to your exact point. It's like this yes. thing that's like, he got away with it. Oh, good for you. Aren't you cute with your fucking, like, murderous Rube Goldberg bullshit? Like. (laughs) (laughs) Rube Goldberg of murder. (laughs) Oh, God, you're killing me. (laughs) I mean, I don't like this, this character at all, but you hate this motherfucker. It's the best thing I've ever heard. I could go another hour. Just you riffing on this fucking dude. Oh, I could easily oh, go God. another hour just talking about this movie, period. <laughs> it is so wild. But he does. Like, he's annoying as shit. He walks in. He's like, here I am. You're trying to find me. Yes. And <laughs> in that exact voice. And he's like, <laughs> nah, hi. I heard you were trying to find me. And he takes Mills and Somerset to the last two bodies in trade for a full confession. But the last killing is the most fucked up killing of all time. Uh. It is life-ruining for everyone involved. It is masterful, and it's how diabolical it is. And I will say this. A lot of people have not seen this movie, but they know the ending. Yeah. And it involves a head in a box. And I will say, if you haven't seen the film, you are missing out on one of the most expert, expertly deployed use, uses of tension. Because this scene goes on for so much longer than I remember. Oh, yeah. And it is tension filled for about five solid fucking minutes. 
Yeah. And when the reveal comes, it is not a relief. It is just another wave of tension and terror. It is, again, to me, masterful. Love that scene. Yeah. Uh, My favorite part of the scene now is Somerset's running. Yes. Basically. Desperate. Yeah. That part is great. Oh, my God. Absolutely unreal. Unreal. So that that's seven. That's that's I think one of the best movies of the nineties. One of the best movies of David Fincher's career. Better than I remembered it being. Mm-hmm. And just so it's a, it's a as Millie would say, it's a rich text. It is a rich text. It to me was it's so funny because I was like thinking about it on so many different levels. By the way, I texted you like when right when we were about to record, and I was basically like, I think I'm gonna skip my movie this week and only talk about seven. Because it just was so <laughs> it was there was just so much that I had um to talk about because it brought back all these feelings of being a teenager, being thinking that this was the edgiest movie I'd ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Realizing that this movie was like a vibe for a lot of kids in the 90s, being that it was violent, dark, goth, you know, and there was, a you know, the Nine Inch Nails shit on the soundtrack, Mm -hmm. you know, just the, like, idea that it takes place in in a town where it literally never, the sun never comes out. Like, and every apartment, literally every apartment is a fucking pigsty like it, yep. no one has light bulbs in seattle or whatever and well that's the other thing that i love about this film is that they intentionally leave the city vague yeah and so the the notion that this could be anywhere i think is is incredibly thoughtful yeah yeah i think it, uh, my immediate thoughts were seattle maybe san francisco but you know it, like you said they don't really I tell thought chicago you i'm like yeah. oh it's chicago it's new york like Right. And, and and I think that's actually maybe probably smart at the end of the day, because so much of like the the location of this film plays heavily into the plot. And, um, you know, it's obviously like something that Somerset communicates to Mills at some point, like, you don't you've never worked here. You never worked in this place that is extra violent, extra dark, extra depressing. But also, so, like, I carried a lot of that, like, 95 feeling to this rewatch. But then, yeah, being much older now, thinking that the edgy things about it are now annoying is really funny. (laughs) Because that's, like, that's how you know I've gotten older, is that all the cool shit is now annoying as shit. (laughs) But also, the idea that it's still a great movie, and it's really entertaining, and despite the fact that, like... You know, I no longer am, am an edgelord, a teenage edgelord. I still, like, thought it was a great film and that David Fincher's a great director, so. Can you please name your next book, I Was a Teenage Edgelord? Oh, yes. I, of course I will. I would love it. Even though I wasn't an edgelord in the same way that, you know, uh, these characters in these films are. But you know and- what I mean. Absolutely. And there again, this film also has a great cast. So you've got Richard Roundtree, rest in peace, King, um, Reggie Cathy, Arlie Ermey. Love it. Like there's all these incredible actors in this. John C. McGinley, like just great, great, great cast as well. Yeah. And I kind of 
think that for a young young director and, you know, kind of newer writer, that must be so exciting. And they weren't put in big roles. You know, they were kind of put in more minor roles that really, I think, emphasize the heft of the of the movie. So this is one of those dudes in the canon that I believe should be there. Rare. Agreed. Rare. <laughs> right. And for the theme, it's perfect because, you know, technically... This motherfucker right here, a guy got away with it, but also the alternate theme, which is again about, you know, the uh the older detective characters and whatnot. Absolutely. And your movie, I could talk about all day as well. I mean, your movie is great. Yeah, so my movie for the theme, this motherfucker right here, is uh one from 2007. It was Written by Joel and Ethan Cohen from a book of the same name by Cormac McCarthy. Obviously directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it's called No Country for Old Men. Let me ask you something. What's the most you ever lost on a Cohen toss? So I don't need to go into the Cohen brothers, really, because we've done episodes about Blood Simple and Raising Arizona. We've talked about them before, so check those out if you can. Um, But I think that No Country for Old Men is considered one of the Coen brothers' best movies, if not their best movie, I think. It came out sort of like, it was like a few years had gone by where they had made these kind of, I don't know, like these like lukewarmly received comedies, right? And... People were really excited when this movie came out that they were maybe kind of returning to these early days of these, you know, neo-noirs like Blood Simple and Miller's Crossing and stuff. This movie was really popular. I mean, it was, you know, commercially successful. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won four. It won Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, Best Director, Directors, and uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And the the thing that I think is also really interesting about this film in terms of their filmography, this movie was kind of seen as the first time that the Coen brothers had made a film that was faithfully based on someone else's material, right? right. And, you know, Cormac McCarthy, obviously a very famous American author. And, you know, they kept it pretty close to the original book. I mean, and apparently McCarthy liked it. He seemed to have liked the film. But I always think it's really interesting when directors who are known for writing and directing their own stuff decide to adapt somebody else's work. Yeah. um, And then that becomes sort of their best movie in a weird way. It's kind of like the Tarantino and Jackie Brown thing. And especially these really auteur-heavy directors that have, like, you know, they've created their own kind of cinematic worlds through their filmography. And just the idea that their best movies might be, you know, that they were ones that somebody else wrote, I think is really interesting. Agree. The one thing that I do want to talk about about this movie, too, is that the movie takes place in West Texas in the 1980s, uh, even though a lot of it was actually shot in New Mexico, but I did read that they they filmed some in Marfa, Texas, and also at Big Bend National Park, which is a couple hours south of Marfa. And I just actually just went to Marfa again. I've been there a few times. I just got back a few months ago. And I feel like this is a part of Texas that 
I think holds a lot of mystique for for people, especially me, because it feels very desolate and kind of wild. I mean, it's sparsely populated. You know, it's mostly desert. It's near the border of Mexico, especially if you're kind of in the Big Bend area or El Paso, especially. So I feel like this is a location, too, that the Coen brothers find fascinating. I mean, this... They've obviously done multiple movies that were set in Texas, but I feel like the West Texas environment especially plays into the tension of this film, right? Because the, I mean, if you just think about it, the simple idea of people who are staging a drug deal, it goes wrong, everybody shoots each other, and then they're basically just out there until somebody stumbles upon them or the animals come. I mean, that's like a very austere type of scenario, right? Like, there is something creepy about that, you know? And that can't happen just anywhere. Yeah. There, There are times, actually, in the film where there are references to places like Sanderson, Texas, and Alpine, and Alpine is actually... Probably the the most, cl- it's probably the closest, most decently sized town next to Marfa. Like, if you've ever been to Marfa, it is like, it's lovely, but it is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like, I've gone through there from both sides. So I've come in from the El Paso side, and then I've come in through the Austin side. And like, from El Paso, it's probably like three and a half hours. And from Austin, it's like, an all-day event type of thing. And it's like, when you're driving there, you're like, there is nothing around. So the idea that Alpine is like the big town, (laughs) which (laughs) Alpine is like Warwick, basically. So (laughs) that gives you an indication on how out there this part of the world is, right? Man. And also another funny little trivia point, too, is that Paul Thomas Anderson was filming There Will Be Blood in Marfa pretty much at the exact same time as they were making No Country for Old Men. So I, I, I think those two movies in particular always remind me of, of that this kind of area of the world. Yeah. A one-sentence synopsis of No Country for Old Men, a man gets involved in a tense cat-and-mouse game with a psychotic killer after discovering... A suitcase full of money in the desert. Perfection. That is it, right? So the man in question we're talking about here is Llewellyn Moss. He's played by Josh Brolin. And Llewellyn is kind of like a normal everyday dude, really, living in Texas. He's married to a woman named Carla Jean. She figures prominently in the story at some point. But, uh... You know, he's one day just out hunting pronghorns in the desert, right? And then he comes across this drug deal that has gone horribly wrong. Everybody's dead. You know, it was basically, to me, it it felt kind of like they did the whole, like, Reservoir Dogs thing where everybody shot each other type of thing. (laughs) Spoiler. Oh, spoiler. Spoiler for (laughs) Reservoir Dogs or spoiler for... (laughs) For Reservoir (laughs) Dogs. Whatever. Uh, let me spoil rest of our dogs for you. <laughs> Look back on the track for a little green pack. Madonna's uh, not a virgin. That's rest of our dogs. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what was I 
that song he was singing when he cut that dude's ear off? Oh, it's like, stuck in the needle. There it is. That's the whole. Oh, and also a guy's ear gets cut off. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. And Steve Buscemi doesn't tip. Spoilers everywhere. There's spoilers. There's the entire movie. You don't have to watch it. So... So he finds the money from this drug deal. It's in a suitcase. And he makes this very film noir character decision, which is that he's just going to take it. And he figures nobody's going to know it's gone because guess what? They're in West Texas. No one is going to even know these people are dead. Right? But we find out pretty quickly that somebody actually does know that he took the money. And it's this character named Anton Sugar, who is played by... Javier Bardem, Academy Award-winning Javier Bardem. <laughs> How to describe this dude, if you don't know? He is so a part of our pop culture at this point, it feels like everybody kind of knows this character, but if you yeah. somehow do not, he is a full-on psychopath. He kills people with this thing that is primarily used to kill cattle, but it's a uh, air-powered kind of bolt pistol thing that comes with like a compressed air tank. It's like the most <laughs> it's the most visible weapon you could probably use to be a, a psychopath. He has this famously ridiculous haircut, which we've All talked about own. on the pod before. Cannot believe that's his own hair. Was, was it his own hair? Was it a wig? His own hair. He grew that shit out and flat ironed it. Wow. And curled it. That's why he got an Oscar, baby. We'll have to double check that fact, but I'm pretty sure it's his own hair. Oh, well, that is splendid trivia. I didn't know that. Also, imagine a guy with that hair who also drinks milk as a grown man. Ooh, disgusting. And, you know, he's also one of these people, and this is what I think takes him from creepy to psycho. He he makes these very big speeches about fate, and he makes people mm-hmm. flip a coin, and that'll decide whether or not he kills them. And it's, it's this very, like, grim reaper type of scenario for this character, right? And it's super taunting. Like, there's a scene in the, the gas station... Oh, Lord. It's super tense. But then at one point, you're like, this is just mean. Oh, yeah. I feel so nervous for that old man in the gas station. Yes. And if you know anything about the Coen Brothers world, you know, they always find the fucking best, most authentic people to play these, like, side characters. Like, people who own gas stations and motor lodges and their secretaries and shit. Like... They're all, like, normal people. So you really feel the this poor Texas man, like, coming across this fucking dude with a bob haircut, you know, flipping a coin and be like, are you going to live or die? I don't know. And you're like, god damn, that's ruthless. It's so brutal and so mean. Well, and part of, I think, you know, so you've got this, like, Grim Reaper kind of character coming through menacing, um, and he is following Llewellyn through this, you know, very harsh, desolate landscape. But on top of that, this movie is essentially scoreless. I mean, there's no, it has very little dialogue, which of course, also because of these things, makes that kind of, it it makes the kind of diegetic sounds of the film 
way creepier. So Anton has a transponder that's inside of the suitcase that Llewellyn is carrying full of money. And that's kind of how he figures out where he is. And it makes this like kind of beeping noise. And this is like a fucking, it's like a death beep throughout the entire film. It's just like so scary. Every footstep, you know, the sound of the air gun, like all of these like sounds in the film are made even scarier because there's like no other sounds in the film essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here's the thing. This is what I think that this is what I think makes this movie very much related to your movie is that you have this sheriff character who's in charge of figuring all this mess out because there's the drug deal that went wrong. There's, you know, Anton menacing everyone he comes across. And then there's the missing money and Llewellyn and Carla Jean, right? So there's this sheriff who is played by Tommy Lee Jones. Perfectly, by the way. Perfectly played. Mm -hmm. Tommy Lee Jones is a Texas dude. He plays a Texas sheriff. Perfectly. Sheriff Bell. And, you know, I think when I first saw this movie, I really sunk my teeth into the sort of interactions between Llewellyn and Anton, right? And it's a huge part of the film. But I think that the Sheriff Bell character is ultimately who the film is about, right? Because he's sort of the mediator between Llewellyn and Anton. And I think as I've gotten older, and I've seen this movie multiple times since it came out, I think I just connect with this character more, right? He's near retirement, just like Somerset in Seven. He's seen a lot of things. He's questioning this new world right, that has changed from the old days that he knows, right? Because he comes from this, like, Old West type of vibe where it was very easy to distinguish between right and wrong. And there was honor, generally. There weren't, like, Antons running around killing everyone for the sake of killing type of thing, right? Right. And part of what I think is brilliant about the Coen brothers is that they they are interested in the Western as a genre, right? So Westerns are classically about these things. They're about frontierism, you know, not just sort of geographically, of course, but like metaphorically, right? Like characters yeah. who are contemplating change and aging and younger people or outsiders who are entering into this sort of very established way of doing things and how the the new people can sometimes mess things up and they don't play by the old rules and that is unsettling to these, you know, Sheriff Bell characters, right? And there's also a a version of the Mills character in No Country for Old Men. There's this younger guy on the force named Wendell, who is played by Garrett Dillahunt. And he's not as obnoxious, certainly, as Mills. But he's that character. Like, he's the young guy who doesn't rely on instinct or patience when it comes to solving crimes. He's just like, let's just go get the dude. Like, why are we waiting around? Like... He doesn't have, he just doesn't let things be. They're just more aggressive. They're younger. They're they're like puppies. They've got puppy energy, right? Yeah. And, you know, part of why I picked this movie for this theme, and 
Spoiler alert. Because ultimately you 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 sense that Anton is gonna get away with everything. Well, because he starts getting away with it. Like at the beginning of the film, he's being arrested. Right. And you think, oh, how's this going to factor into the story if he's being arrested? And then you watch him snake out of his handcuffs in the creepiest possible way. Right. And like kill a small town cop and leave. Yeah. So like he starts the movie getting away with it. So you're like, oh, oh, he going to get away with it again. Yeah. And that is like the message of this film This is why there is no country for old men. It's because a guy like Anton is literally going to reset his own broken arm, you know, or like he's going to uh, remove bullets from his own body. Like evil will persist. Evil finds a way, right? Which is like a fucked up concept, but also intriguing as a, you know, a viewer or somebody that, you know, loves a rich text as we do. But the thing about this film that I love about it so much is that it's very meditative in that way. So you have these like big moral concepts happening, but then you have this like vibe, right? Of this West Texas landscape, no score, no conversations. You do have the kind of like, again, requisite kind of funny Coen Brothers moments, like you've got this Woody Harrelson character that comes into play at a certain point. He kind of comes and goes, as you will see if you've seen this movie before, uh, or will see it. But then, you know, you've got these, like, side characters, like the the older ladies that <laughs> work in the motels. and But everything is very methodical. Like, even Llewellyn, who is trying to make away with this money. Like, he doesn't want these people to find out that he has this money because he's got Anton on his case. He's got the actual drug cartel people who have figured it out. And he's in that very noir way. He's like running out of options type of thing. But even in the ways that he kind of plans out how to hide the money, mm-hmm. you know, when he's in the motels and, and that kind of stuff is very, um, maybe people think that those details are boring, but I love them. I think they're very, yeah. uh, it really sets a tone, right? Well, you get into the mind of the character a little bit and trying to understand, like, oh, this is a, a this is something he obviously he's never encountered before, but he's smart in this particular way. Like, he's smart in a devious way, which makes me wonder, what has his life been like <laughs> that he yeah. could come up with this so quickly? Yeah, which is, I again, I think, I think that's what makes this a noir because. These these classic noir characters are the or Llewellyn. They're like guys who are normal. They're just trying to get by. They have you know they live in trailers. They have wives. Like they're just kind of but they but they they see a chance at like a big score. You know they feel like I got nothing to lose. Like let's just fucking go for it. The 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 situation looks a little foolproof. Like. It's in the middle of the desert. Everyone's dead. No one's going to even know if this money was arri- had arrived or was gone. But then he's in over his head, you know? And it starts getting... I mean, part of the pacing of the film is very pleasing to me where it is like a 
kind of minute by minute, hour by hour kind of thing of of him trying to figure out what the fuck he's going to do to get away from these people, to get away from Anton especially. There's a point where he goes to Mexico and there's this like constant runner in the film about borrowing other guys' shirts <laughs> and other guys' clothes, which is really interesting to me. It's um, like a very Coen Brothers nod. Yeah. <laughs> like a weird detail. Yeah. Like a weird comedic detail that they could include here. Yeah. I, the part where, um, I guess it is towards the end of the film where Anton is like, let me, bar- let me, how much for your shirt? And the kid's like, dude, what? <laughs> it's like, mister, I'll give you my shirt. Your arm's poking out of your arm. Oh, God. <laughs> that shit. That was my new sloth, basically, <laughs> is seeing the bone protruding was I was like horrified by that. I oh, God. kept thinking about that all night long after I saw this movie again. But, you know, the thing about, again, I think what 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 makes this movie very special to me, it's like it's it's such a great film. It's just that it is a a very s- simply made film and it communicates so much. You know, and again, I love the idea that we paired this movie with Seven because, again, it's it's about these concepts. I mean, honestly, Seven is also a, a no country for old man type of thing, too, right? Like, yeah. And I don't know. As I've gotten older, I think that 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 these kind of things come front of mind about like, oh, what is the world like? What was the world like in 1995 when I was running around being a teenage edge lord? thinking that, you know, violence of this scale was, like, relegated to fucking Hollywood movies, right? Right. And now I'm, like, in a in a world where that shit happens in real life sometimes, too, you know? Oof. So, it's wild. And, um, I don't know, I didn't mean to get so contemplative at the end of this episode, but now, <laughs> now you put me here, bitch! Well, I loved it. I loved rewatching it. It was creepier than I thought it would be. I agree that it's like the pacing of it and it's 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 a really beautiful movie. And I think that the the quiet nature of the film like helps you pay attention to some of the more tense moments. It just I don't know, I just I really loved watching it again. It feels like a like it feels like a very special movie and it was very well received. Um, and has received a lot of accolades and awards, but I still think it's a it's a it's a special movie. Like it's rare that a movie gets that much attention that's actually worth it. Yeah, I I think so too. I think it's it's such a good film in their fil- filmography. It, you know, again, I think it does kind of harken back to the blood simply type of days. And yeah, I mean, there are some of my favorite filmmakers working in America. They're just I I've always loved them. I will always see their movies like in theaters, usually opening weekend. They kind of feel like those types of directors to me. So mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of the theme this week, I lo- I loved it. Like I said, I think the pairing was so good and I didn't realize how good it would be until I saw these both together and was like, oh yeah, this is about something else too. Yeah. It's very, very smart. Very smart of you. Very astute. Yeah. Well, listen, Hey, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Send us questions for bonus episodes. Please make them shorter if possible. 
We also have a P.O. box if you want to send us handwritten letters. And you can leave us a voicemail to play on the show. All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to isawatyoudidpod at gmail.com. Please make it 60 seconds or less and please record in a quiet space. Also, we are on social media, of course. We are at I Saw Pod on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Twitter. Oh my gosh. Do you want to tell them what the movies for next week are? Sure, I'll do that. The movies for our next episode are Damn, The French Connection from 1971, and Vanishing Point from 1971. 71, a big year for themed. Double features, apparently. That's right. And actually, just a little tip for me to you, you might need to go to the Internet Archive to find Vanishing Points. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait. I'm gonna, my, 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 I might watch them tonight. I yeah. might watch them tonight. There's a couple of bangers for sure. Well, listen, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it! Love it! <laughs> This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.